Linda and I were actually invited to a formal wedding. I haven't been to very many totally formal weddings where they expect everyone to wear tuxedos and ball gowns and all of the things. And so this is a, a high flutin' thing here coming up. Actually, it's the first weekend of sabbatical. It's our first thing that we're going to do is we're going to go to this wedding. And it's, it's kind of a big deal. And weddings seem to be rituals that are disappearing. Have you noticed this? And we're excited to go to this wedding. I love weddings. I love giving my blessing to a couple by just my presence there. I've been thinking about the things that we invite into our lives. I think some people invite chaos into their life instead of peace. Do you know anyone like that? And while there's several ways to invite chaos into your life, and I won't go through the list right now, I'm thinking specifically about a lack of routine, a lack of habits, rhythms, and rituals. Because irregular rhythms in our life invite chaos rather than peace. Irregular rhythms in our life invite chaos rather than peace. The Hebrew word for peace is fascinating. I looked at it this week. I nerded out on Hebrew letters because what I've learned is each letter of the Hebrew alphabet actually has meaning to it that brings meaning to the whole word. So I'm going to show you shalom. It reads from right to left. Sheen, which means the teeth or the ability to destroy or consume. Lamed, which is the, the one that's a, like a staff. It means authority. And then maim means water or chaos. So this word literally itself means that God has perfect peace and that peace has the authority or the teeth to destroy chaos in our life. That looks a lot more militant than namby-pamby peace. Oh, it's just peace, peace, right? And I believe that while we trust God that he can do this kind of work, that his peace can come and destroy the chaos in our lives, we also have a part to play. And that part has to do with establishing God's healthy, holy rhythms. And when we do so, then we invite that peace instead of the chaos that the world has to offer. So as we've talked about rhythms, rhythms are seen... We've talked about rhythms that are daily rhythms. Perhaps the rhythm of reading your Bible before you look at your phone. Or the rhythm of kneeling down to pray three times a day. We've looked at weekly rhythms. Like having one conversation with one person once a week for one hour. We looked at perhaps the idea of fasting something every week. These rhythms can become rituals. And Jeff Bethke says this, rituals are the habits of meaning. I love that. Habits of meaning. They're not just habits like flossing my teeth, which I'm so glad I've finally got the habit down after all these years. But rituals are the habits of meaning. This is much deeper than, than flossing your teeth. That gives us an anchor and adds depth to our lives. He goes on to say this. As a culture, we're losing ritual and we're losing rhythm. 
We're losing rootedness and depth and anchoredness, if that's even a word, because time and rhythm and ritual, these things are no longer external forces that we must submit to. We think they're just things that we can bend or hack or destroy, or so we think. But I would ask, how's that working for you? When we experience chaotic moments, because we will as we're living on this earth, instead of shrinking back and taking the role of a victim, what if we put our energy into thoughtfully changing our micro decisions, those things that become habits and habits that become routines and routines becoming rhythms, and finally, rituals. What if we thoughtfully change those so we'd begin to invite more of God's peace, living at his pace, destroying the chaos? You know, the big difference between chaos and peace or shalom is rhythm. Rhythm Well, chaos is unpredictable. It's all over the map, unrhythmic. It has no set cadence. As a musician, I appreciate tempo and cadence. And shalom is more like a dance. It depends on the rhythm of music. Now, this music... This is the beauty of Beethoven. His most famous symphony, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. It's written to show the power of overcoming and victory. Everybody's got an idea of what it really means. But in this symphony, it was written to show the power, this this power of overcoming, but it also has great order to it in four different movements. I believe Jesus, in a similar way, wants to deliver gifts of peace to us. And part of the invitation that we extend is choosing to dance in his rhythm with his order to his symphony of peace. So, I'm here to tell you, just like Amy said earlier, I have been living out these rhythms of grace in my life for the last few months, and it has really changed me. It has brought incredible peace to my life because I'm dancing or living, if you will, according to the the rhythm of peace. And we're continuing this series. I'm calling it Learning the Unforced Rhythms of Grace. And we've looked at a lot of introverted rhythms. We looked at The idea of silence and solitude and Sabbath and spending time with God, which are really, really important. Last week, we talked about our first extroverted rhythm, if you will, one that's focused on building our relationships and our community with others, which is incredibly important. We talked about the rhythms of the table and the power of eating meals together. And so this week, we're going to take it one step further to look at rituals that are not as daily, not as weekly but maybe only happen once in a while or once a year. We're going to see Jesus' practice of celebrating feasts and festivals that God commanded in Leviticus 23. We're going to be challenged to use occasions of celebration as rhythms of community and connection 
that build courage in us as a people and help us to understand how we belong, shapes parts of our identity. Looking forward to sharing also just a couple practical ways that you can celebrate important holidays like Easter, which is coming up just next Sunday, and get the most out of the occasion. All right, so diving in, um, Leviticus 23, it's, I'm sure, one of your favorite passages of the Bible. It names all the feasts and the holy days that the Lord has commanded his people to observe. And God wanted them to celebrate the most, these really important occasions for what, what I call three reasons. And these are my reasons. They're not in the Bible. The first one is God always is asking us to remember. Remember what I did for you. Look back there and see what I did. Remember, remember, remember. Why? Because we're people that often forget. We forget God's faithfulness in the past. And yet when we remember what God has done for us in the past, it begins to embolden and strengthen our faith and give us courage for this present moment. And in this present moment, our choice is, will you be thankful for where you are right now? Will you step into a place of faith and trusting God because you know he's been trustworthy in the past? So in the present moment, then celebrating him, giving glory to him, praise and thanksgiving and thanking him for what he's already done and what he's doing currently And it shifts our focus for the future. Our future then looking through the lens of anticipation of what God will do. What he's going to do because he'll do more of the same. I believe every feast and every single festival that God commands have those three aspects to them. Remembering, worshiping, giving gifts, offerings, and different things in the present moment. And then changing your mindset and giving you faith to believe that God's going to be with you in the future. And so the Jews go by the lunar calendar and the dates of every occasion then shift. So if you're trying to keep track on our Gregorian calendar, it can get a little bit confusing. They then have their calendar revolving around what the moon does. And in fact, in the Old Testament, God invites his people once a month to celebrate the new moon. And you think, wait a second, he's asking them to worship the moon. No, he's not. Don't think that. You were thinking that, weren't you? No, he's just saying, celebrate my goodness and my newness because God loves to do new things. He gives, loves to give new songs. He gives new ideas to us. His mercies are new every morning. There's a freshness to what God wants to do. So 12 times a year, throw a party for a new moon. You probably have not done that. Uh, you not, have not celebrated the new moon in your household. I'd be shocked if you have, but you could if you wanted to. We've talked about Sabbath in this series, Shabbat, this day rich in relationship, in joy, in celebrating creation, in meeting with our creator. Happens 52 times a year. So you got 12 plus 52. I mean, we got a, we got a lot of enjoying life right now if, you're, we're, if we're living in this rhythm. And then the Jewish feasts, which add even more time. That's what I'm going to go through here in a minute. So God's people are commanded to celebrate and party. This is not a burden for us. No. Do I have to party? No, you get to party. Anyone thinks that following God is boring is you're not doing it right. Let us help you. You haven't looked at really what God says in his word. So all these events point to reestablishing trust in God. I believe every festival, every feast 
It's all about trusting God instead of taking things in our own control. I'm just giving the macro concepts before we get there because I'm going to move quickly. So, even Sabbath, one day in seven, where you rest, you cease from work, you trust God to be your provider instead of working another day trying to make sure you got enough. Every seventh year, God commanded his people to stop controlling the land and let it set, be set free by letting the land rest. Then immigrants and wild animals and the poor could feast on any fruits therein. Every seventh year, they were told to cancel the debts. A social equalizer that would have had the power that said, have you got the, that, the power in your hands? And you release that. Not only debts, but you would free all slaves. This was an effort to remember the goodness of the Garden of Eden and the rest from work on the seventh day and these Sabbath rhythms. If you want to hear a great podcast on the feasts and this, this topic, the Bible Project app is out. You can go to the app store and download the Bible Project app and um, look up I think it's called feasts or festivals. You'll get it if you Google it. It's about an hour long. Absolutely fascinating. Tim Mackey and John do a fantastic job talking through this. It's not a video yet, but it's really great. So all these events commanded, carried some kind of prophetic significance about the coming of Messiah, Jesus. So... These are appointed times. God has carefully planned and orchestrated the timing, and he's telling a story with each of these events. So these are still celebrated by observant Jews today. And for Jews and non-Jews who put their faith in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, these special days, they did demonstrate the work of redemption through God's Son. So just as Beethoven carefully planned out his fifth symphony, the four movements of his symphony, God has then also carefully planned out these moments of feastings and focused on his goodness in the past, his faithfulness in the present, and then his expectation for the future. So what are these appointed times? We're going to breeze through quickly your favorite passage in the Bible, Leviticus 23. Are you ready? Put your seatbelts on, people. Leviticus 23, verse 2, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed feasts, these appointed times, these appointed feasts of the Lord that you're going to proclaim as sacred assemblies. These are holy moments. Even if they're a lot of fun, they're still holy. Those two things can go together. So what's the first thing he mentions? He mentions Sabbath. There's six days when you work. The seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest. I've done a whole message on this, so we won't get into Shabbat right now. But it is so beautiful when we practice Shabbat in this way. We come into alignment. The second one is Passover. This is the one I want to talk most about because Passover is coming up this week. So, Leviticus 23, verse 4, verse 5, the Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the fourth day. 14th day of the first month. So Passover is a reminder of how God sent the angel of death and he passed over the houses of the Israelites because they put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts to symbol save us. And so then 
The angel of death passed over, but every other household, then the firstborn son died on that night. So it's a celebration of looking back and seeing that God spared their lives in Egypt, that the angel of God passed over. And this is to show us that someday when Messiah comes and he sheds his blood, that we'll be then not slaves under the control of death, but be freed from it. Now, this is the first holiday that we know that Jesus celebrated. In Luke 2, it says, When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, skipping to verse 41, every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. This was a family affair. And so here's Jesus. He's 12 years old, and he's experiencing Passover. Had he been there before? Don't know, but we know that the family were very observant to these things. There is something to be said for us parents and grandparents setting the pace for routine and rhythm and ritual for our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, and sometimes even when they don't like it. What do you mean I can't eat turkey until I say what I'm thankful for? We're going to wait. Stick to your guns, grandma and grandpa. Stick to your, your guns, mom and dad. Set the example. Do not cave in. Well, so the first holiday, Jesus, we see Jesus celebrating Passover. Guess what the last holiday that he, that he spent doing? Passover. And we see that in the Holy Week. And Luke 22 Then came the day of unleavened bread. We're going to talk about that in a minute. On which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. And when the hour came, verse 14, Jesus and his disciples or his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The very last thing is the last supper. Now, how does Passover point to Jesus? I talked about this just a second, but I want to give you a couple bullet points because it's so rich. It would be a real shame if we missed it. So Passover points to Jesus as our Passover lamb. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, because his blood was shed for, our, for the forgiveness of our sins and that we then don't have to be experiencing death, separation from God. Jesus is crucified during Passover. In fact, if you look at the timing, it's literally at the, at the same time that those lambs would have been sacrificed for the sins. He's dying on the cross and saying, Father, admit my spirit. Jesus is a lamb without blemish or, de- or defect, 1 Peter 1 says. And the first Passover, um, <clears throat> this is just the freedom. This says that it's the freedom from Egyptian slavery, celebrating that. And now the death of Jesus marks our release from the slavery of sin. Romans 8 talks about that. So it's a really powerful foreshadowing in the Old Testament of what is to come in Jesus. It is a part of a larger feast. Passover then kicks off the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The 15th day of the month, Leviticus says, the Lord's Feast of the Unleavened Bread begins. For seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. So, and they also have offerings and sacred assemblies. So it's a time you didn't work. So it was an extended Sabbath, if you will. 
But you also didn't eat any bread with yeast in it, so think crackers or matzah. And you made sacrifices, and you worshipped. was a reminder to them of exiting Egypt and not having the time to make bread that they needed to rise. So they're on the move, eating unleavened bread. How does this point to the Messiah? Glad you asked. Points to Messiah as being one without sin, because leaven is a picture of sin in the Bible. We see that he was tempted in every way, yet did not sin in Hebrews 4. Jesus follow, in fact, Jesus warns his followers to avoid the leaven, quote, of the religious leaders in Matthew 16. And I just thought this was a cool thing. I, I believe Jesus' body is in the ground during the first days of this feast, like a kernel of wheat waiting to burst forth as the bread life. What's the next feast? Well, it comes really right within a week or so. Leviticus 23, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land, I'm going to give you and reap its harvest. So you're going to, once you get your, that first harvest in the spring, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain that you harvest. So you're going to bring your first fruits, uh, your the very first apple you pick off the tree, the very first cucumber you pull off the vine. You're going to bring this and, and make this as a gift to, to the Lord to thank him for what he's done. And biblically, the, the first fruits was observed on the first day after the Sabbath at Passover. Do you remember what else happened on the first day of the week after Sabbath? Hmm, let's look at Matthew 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and that other Mary went, went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for the angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. Jesus rises from the dead on first fruits. He's not here, verse 6 says. He's risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he was lying. So, wow. The idea that Jesus is the first one to rise, just as the Pharisees would teach about the resurrection of the righteous someday. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. He points to the fact that the Messiah's resurrection is the first fruits of the righteous who will also rise. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. But there's an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Beautiful picture of what will be. So, the next feast is the Feast of Weeks. I never understood this until this week. This is all a little bit new to me. And so I've just been diving in and just saying, Lord, what is it that you have for us in this? I don't want to miss out on anything that you have. So the Feast of Weeks is actually just counting weeks until this celebration. And um, Leviticus 23, from the day after the Sabbath... The day you brought the sheaf to wave the, the first fruits offering, count off seven full weeks. Quick math, 49 days. Count off 50 days up to the day, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord from wherever you live. Now you're bringing two loaves you made. 
with this fine flour, baked with yeast now as a, as a wave offering to the first fruits. Thank you, God. So what's going on here? Looking back, thinking about that first Passover where they're coming out of Egypt and they travel for 49 days and they stop at Mount Horeb on day 49. On day 50, Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God to receive the word of the Lord. And this, was suppo- this is a celebration of the giving of the law. And they're like, yeah. Deuteronomy 16 says, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. God's going, um, you need to party really hard on this day. This is a really big celebration. And there's, there's no direct mention of the feast and Jesus being at the feast in the Gospels. But this day, for those of you who are Sunday school graduates, probably have already figured out, is a very important day 50 days after that Passover. Because the Greeks would call it Pentecost. And Acts 2 says this, when the day of Pentecost came, this is that last, we've counted off the seven weeks, now we're here, and there's all kinds of people in the city ready to celebrate this amazing celebration of God's goodness, that that the harvest has come in. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting, And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. So the church is actually established on Pentecost. 3,000 Jews responded to Peter's fantastic sermon and his proclamation of the gospel. And all of a sudden, these people are all hearing their own language as the apostles go out speaking in tongues and explaining the glory of God. Man, I want to see the video of that one. So I saw, found this little, little picture here. So you've got Shavuot, which is basically the Feast of Weeks. And the idea is you have same day, different names, both representing the 50th day after Passover, God performing two amazing works on that same day. So when I think about the feasts, I think about spring and fall. We've just talked about the spring feasts Now we're going to look at the fall feast. Many people say the spring feasts have been completely fulfilled, but the fall feasts are yet to come. I think that might be true, but let's take a look real quick. The feast of trumpets. The Lord said, say to the Israelites, on the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with the trumpet blasts. Do no regular work, but present an offering made by the Lord by fire. Okay, so you would know this trumpet blast day as Rosh Hashanah. It is the first day of the year. It's, Rosh Hashanah means the head of the new year. I'm going to be the head, not the tail. And, and a, an anticipation of the next 10 days, which are called the days of awe. Oh, that sounds good. Celebrate the days of awe. And it was a time to reflect and repent of your sin. And it was also a reminder of the trumpet call that when the people were at around the mountain, that when Moses came down, they blew the trumpet and they all came to make covenant with God. So they're remembering that great day. 
but it's also looking forward to another day that Jesus spoke about. Matthew 24 says this, at that time, and Jesus is talking about the future, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn, and they will send the sea of the Son of Man, Jesus, coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. So this Feast of Trumpets is pointing to the Messiah's future return to earth. We see this in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, 1 Corinthians 15, and Revelation 1. It's pretty clear to me. It's a beautiful expectation of our Jesus that will come once again to dwell with his people on earth. Then, 10 days after that, we get the Day of Atonement, which you, would, you might know as Yom Kippur. And this 10th day of the 7th month is the Day of Atonement. Hold a sacred assembly. Deny yourselves, that's fast, and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. Don't work on that day because it's the Day of Atonement, when atonement is made for you by the Lord your God. So this is looking at the entire sacrificial system and the fact that there is forgiveness for, sin, for sins and reconciliation with God and priests laying hands on two goats and allowing one to go as a scapegoat into the, into the wilderness and the other being sacrificed. Obviously, this is pointing to the fact that Jesus gives his life to forgive our sins. Once and for all, Hebrews 9 and 10 talk all about that. One last feast. It might be the, kind of the most fun, I think, and that is the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths. The Lord says to Moses, Feast of Tabernacles begins on 15th day of the seventh month. So you're talking about these things are really in close proximity to one another. This is a sacred assembly. Do no work. Seventh days of presenting offerings. And on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly. So this feast was a time of rejoicing because once again, now the fall harvest is over. It's thanking God for what he's done for us. Looking back. Temporary shelters that they would put up, that they would uh, eat in and sometimes sleep in to remind them of what it was like to be in temporary shelters as the people of God were moving through the wilderness. And the fact that God will meet you right where you are, no matter what your situation, your circumstances are. They would eat, so they would eat their, their meals. I can imagine this being kind of like a party outside. It's like when your kids want to like uh, sleep in a tent in the backyard. That's kind of like that. Except for it was everyone. Seven days holiday, and it ends with the great Hosanna, where the priest proclaims this great Hosanna in this water-pouring ceremony. We see this in John 7, where he's, he's basically saying, please, God, save us. He's, the priest is giving the great Hosanna, and Jesus steps up and goes, here I am. I am the living water. Anyone who drinks from me will never thirst again. And he seizes the moment there, the beautiful picture. I think this festival is really looking forward to Revelation 21. That idea of the dwelling of God now being with men. And that has always been God's intention from the very beginning in the garden. He wanted to dwell with his people. And that will be our future. And this reminds us of that. So, was there a bonus holiday that Jesus observed that's not even in the Bible? Glad you asked. Yes. It's called the Feast of Dedication you would know it as Hanukkah. And we see it there in John 10. Then came the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. It was winter. 
Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. Now, this was not in the Torah, but Jesus doesn't ignore it. Jesus can celebrate holidays that aren't in the Bible. So can we. And I'm not going to get into all of what Hanukkah is about because I don't have time this morning. But this was all about the Jerusalem temple and worshiping the Father. Why wouldn't Jesus want to show up for that? And he was there. So, some Christians celebrate the Jewish feast still. Do you have to celebrate them? I would say you don't have to do anything. But you might get to do it. Let me say this. We don't believe in replacement theology. What is replacement theology? Well, it says that, well, the Jews messed it up. They didn't really receive Jesus the first time as Messiah. Therefore, they're out. Somehow the church has replaced them. No. Romans is very clear about the fact that we've been grafted in like a branch in a tree into Israel, into the Jewish people. And so, good news, God's got a great future for Israel. And we're commanded to be a part of his people. Some people are, some Christians are so freaked out because they just don't understand. But I think it's just beautiful that Jesus is Jewish. He's got Jewish rhythms. He observes these Jewish feasts. Why? Because they all point to him. And there's incredible meaning and blessing. And all of a sudden we understand Our Bible that was written by Jews, mostly to Jews, in its proper context when we understand these things. So at the very least, we should study these things. We should understand them more fully. We can appreciate Jesus being at the center. And some of my friends do celebrate these feasts, and they have a ball. It's like we're missing out on some good stuff. Now, does this mean like, you know, you got to run out and you don't have to do anything. This is what I love about the scriptures. Paul already anticipated your stress. Colossians 2. There, don't let anyone judge you about what you eat or drink, whether you, with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration. If you want to celebrate the new moon, no one's going to judge you. Um, or a Sabbath day. These are just a shadow of things to come. Reality is found in Christ. He's not saying don't do them. He's saying don't worry about what people are going to say. You want to do these? Great. And we're not bound to do these things, but I believe that there's something for us to discover if we're willing to open our hearts and our minds, not to be legalistic, but to find Jesus in the midst of it. Romans 14 also goes on to say, one man considers one day more sacred than the other. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards this one day as special does so to the Lord. I'm going to do it to the Lord. And it goes on to talk about eating meat and different things in that context. So it's not required for you to celebrate Jewish feast days. But perhaps it's time to begin to at least study them and think about them. It was interesting. I was sitting across from uh, a young woman from Israel. And I began asking her about these feasts. She looked at me like I had three heads. She said, how do you know so many things about our culture? Well, I follow Jesus, and uh, he's a Jew. And it was like, like, you can't, you can't adopt those things. Sure I can. Why can't I? There's no problem with that. It was cute. So, 
modern day feasts. We have some modern day feasts as well. We've got one coming up this next Sunday, Easter, right? How can we make and find rituals that have meaning within those holidays? Well, I can't tell you all the ways, but I can get your brain thinking just here for a minute as we close. Because I was thinking about Christmas, right? Christmas seems like the holiday that would be the easiest to like pivot and worship Jesus. And I think it's sometimes the hardest to just filled with so much consumerism and selfishness and different things. And I found myself last, last, this last Christmas longing to find a Christmas Eve midnight mass. And I wasn't the only one. I talked to some friends and they were like, I felt that same way too. Why? Because my heart was going, I got to worship and I want to be with other people worshiping. Nothing sacred about midnight. There was just something in my heart that was pulling me to it. And do we listen to those things? And do we create space for those things? My dad, when growing up with my sister and I, would say, I'm going to read the Christmas story before we open presents. Anybody else do that? Was it just our family? It wasn't just our family. Okay, I don't know, because I didn't live at your house. But I'll tell you what, like, I was like, come on, dad, come on, come on, dad, come on, dad. And then as I got older, I went, no, I think I want to listen to this again. And the ritual took on more meaning. It didn't take less meaning. Because dad wasn't reading it from the... And he has a nice deep voice like Abe. It's just great. You've heard my dad read. I'm like, yeah, I need to be reminded of this. How often do we need to stop and remind ourselves? Now, wait a second. Oh, we're getting ourselves too, too far ahead of ourselves. Thanksgiving, incredibly easy. Talk about remembering what God's done. All right, what's everybody thankful for? The question to add to that is, so now that you're thankful for that, what is it giving you faith to believe God for in the future? There's your follow-up question. I have to remind you like six months from now, I guess, on that question. Um, Easter's really fun, right? Easter's fun. It's really easy to celebrate Jesus because it's all about Jesus rising from the dead. Um, And sometimes I feel like the world has all the fun rituals and like we need to create some more fun rituals around this, right? Like I, I just, I just want to challenge you this next Sunday, what fun thing can you do that's infused with meaning that would be powerful? I love celebrating the saints. If you've known me for any amount of time, I'm going to talk about a saint at some point. Not because I pray to them, because I don't. I pray directly through Jesus to the Father. It's great. But I love the saints because they live these incredible lives and I get to learn from them. It's like they're my friends. So St. Patrick's Day is not a day to drink green beer, for God's sake. St. Patrick's Day is the day that you Google the stories about St. Patrick and you read them and say, Jesus, may this be true of me. Valentine's Day, same way. Google, that's the beautiful thing about Google. Y'all got Google, right? Go find out who St. Valentine was. And what love really looked like, what that meant. Birthdays, I spend time in multiple families as an extended family member. And my most favorite time is when someone will say, hey, it's such and such's birthday. Let's all go around and talk about what we love about them. And then, in, yeah, it's awkward for the first 10, 10 seconds. And then all of a sudden, this powerful honoring happens. And then it shifts the entire time from just cake and ice cream to 
we really love you. And these are the things that we love about you. And I believe even the Holy Spirit begins to prompt you that you begin to say things that you didn't even know were inside your heart. They just flow out of you. And it's just an incredible, powerful moment. It's a ritual of meaning. Same Same is true with Father's Day or Mother's Day. This is opportunities to honor. Last thing. These are also opportunities for you to open your table and add a chair. If you're going to celebrate a holiday of any kind, can you think of a neighbor that you're trying to love on? Somebody that you've gotten to know their name, you've been praying for them, but maybe this is the gutsy move to say, hey, do you have anybody to celebrate Easter with? Would you like to come and be around our table? Not making it awkward for them, but just being you. Sometimes the only gospel they're going to hear is just seeing you with your family. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10 says. Rituals are able to carry the culture of the kingdom. They can carry it forward to the next generation and to the next generation. They can empower and embolden a faith community to live out their historic faith from a strong identity. Rituals, I think, are reminders of what's really important. We're going to pause and make sure that we keep our eyes on what's really important, true, and worth living for. And they point back to the meaning in life that so many people are searching for. Victor Frankl said in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, his his famous book chronicles his time in Nazi concentration camps, that the people who were most likely to survive the brutality of the concentration camp were those who held on to a purpose. They had meaning. And so there was a Jewish woman from Hungary. She was imprisoned at Auschwitz, the Nazi concentration camp in World War II, and she knew when she arrived at that camp on the second day of the Festival of Weeks, We would call it Pentecost. She counted the days until the next Sabbath. And then on that Friday evening, the beginning of Shabbat, she would make two little candles from leftover margarine that she saved from her meals and some little threads she pulled off of the bottom of her dress. And she would light those candles in those barracks like generations of Jewish families before her. And she encouraged all the other women in her barracks to do the same. And before long, every Friday night, that room was glowing with an act of resistance and defiance that says, you can take away my freedom. You can take away my possessions. You could even take away my life. But you can't take away the meaning that lives in me. The meaning of the Friday ritual of lighting the two candles before sunset to usher in the Jewish Shabbat. And welcome God into her soul, no matter where she stood, even if it was in that awful place called Auschwitz. After the war, she claimed that the one thing that got her through was lighting those two Shabbat candles. This ritual connected her to God, to her community, and gave her meaning and reinforced her identity. I wonder what rituals we need to exchange for something much more powerful. If you'd stand with me, prayer folks, if you'd come down forward, thanks for hanging a couple extra minutes with me today as I did some deep teaching on the festivals and 
I'm a little bit new to it. I'm, I'm still learning myself, and uh, you can come on the journey with me. There's lots of resources online if you'd like to walk through a, a, a Jewish uh, Passover, but have Jesus at the center. All those resources are all available. We'd love to point you to, to, to some of those if you want to celebrate this next week. And so, Jesus, thank you that you showed us that rituals are not bad, but they are filled with incredible meaning, and they can be powerful. I pray, Lord, for great courage for us that we would steer our families, our friends, and our neighbors toward who you are by finding these rhythms uh, that can be once a year. Thank you for your goodness and grace over us. I pray that you would meet us in this holy week. May this be a week where your presence is uniquely felt. So I pray this blessing on this family in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks for coming, everybody. We'll see you Good Friday, noon and 6.30, or Easter Sunday, right here at 10.